Hi, I'm John. I'm one of the pastors at Victory and I'm also the director of our provincial churches. At Victory, we are committed to plant churches all over the Philippines, believing that together we can disciple this nation. Hope this message inspires you to honor God and make disciples. I'm excited to be preaching the message for today. And it's something that's close to, to my heart personally, to our heart as a local church, to our heart as a movement, and to the heart of God. But before I get there, just some personal updates. I'm happy to announce that uh, my family and I are flying home this week. So on Thursday night here, our time here, Friday morning or afternoon, uh, Manila time, we're flying home to, the, to Manila. So please keep us in your prayers uh, for protection. And uh, we will be in a quarantine as well. We'll have to quarantine in a hotel. Um, it took a long time to find the right one that uh, wasn't too expensive, but at least nice enough for, you know, with, with my mother-in-law and our babies there. So hopefully the test results won't take too long and we'll be out of there rather quickly. So we are in Campus Sunday and we have uh, two weeks of this. So I'll be preaching this week. And it's something, like I said earlier, that's close to our heart as a church here in Katipunan. Because we, you know, we, we reach out to the campuses around us. Uh, UP, Ateneo, Miriam, uh, even the, the other high schools in the area, especially the ones that send students to those schools. And we also have a lot of students from, who study in other places, but live in this area where we're in, the, the geographical area of the church. And sometimes when we talk about reaching the campus, it's tempting to think that, ah, that's for them, that's for the young people. But that's never how we've preached it as a church. It's always been a multi-generational thing about how both generations, or all generations, if there's more than one, need to work together. And that's good for society, but overall, that's, that's really a reflection of the heart of God, as we'll see. Allow me to read from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 to 6, for this message. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's pray. Dear Lord, please help us find what that means to know how you, you have a heart, Lord, for multiple generations. Help us, Lord, today, whatever generation we're a part of, to not just look at ourselves, not just look at the other generations ahead of us or behind us, but to look to you and to say, God, with you, there is a hope that it is possible to have reconciliation, even strong relationships across generations. In Jesus' name, amen. As you see in this verse, what it's talking about is Elijah the prophet, a prophecy by the prophet Malachi, which is at the end of the Old Testament. These are actually the last verses of the Old Testament. And it foretells the coming of the New Testament, of Jesus. And one of the benefits that it says is that the hearts of the fathers and the children will be reconciled. Meaning that multiple generational relationships, multi-generational relationships will be healthy and will thrive. And that is a benefit of knowing Jesus, of knowing God. And that's the goal of this message, more than just talking about our campus ministry, about specific universities or ENC. It's really about capturing the heart of God for what it looks like for God's people to have strong relationships, even across generations. And why does it require God to do that? Bakit kailangan galing pa sa Diyos? And the reason is because it's hard 
to do that. Even today, you know, we see this huge generation gap um, with the rapid uh, adv advance of technology, communication, information, even causes that people are into. And because of the big differences, there are often lots of fights, lots of disagreements that people have across generations. Some generations will argue with one another, generalizing, saying, why are all young people like this? Why are all old people like that? Kayong mga millennial, okay, boomer. And people use all of these different words to cast insults at one another and instead of building deeper relationships, instead of building deeper understandings. You know, one example is, for example, uh, the older generation now might look at the younger generation and say, why do they share so much on social media? Have they no sense of privacy? Have they no sense of security, of modesty? Why do they need to, to flaunt everything? Why do they need to express, do they need the, the likes of anonymous people in order to make themselves feel good? On the other hand, the younger generation might say, um, why do they have to hide so much? Why does the older generation have so much to hide? Why are they so concerned about silencing and, 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 and censoring things? Why can't they speak freely? Notice how both those questions choose to paint the other generation in the worst possible way. Instead of pointing out the value or the truth, the truth is both of them have value, both of them have significant points, but instead of coming together, we insist on our own instead of uniting. You know, what's funny is, it might feel like, you know, it's a very current thing, a very now thing, especially with technology and the internet and, and social media, blah, 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 and all of that. But it's, it's not. It's actually a very old thing. From the very beginning of human recorded history, uh, we see examples, archaeologists and historians see examples of, of this generational gap. Uh, in, in, in ancient Rome, for example, you can see people saying things like... Um, getting mad at one another and uh uh horace the roman historian getting mad at, at young people saying oh they've lost the values of our generation plato and aristotle also famously condemned the youth of their time uh 1300s there's these japanese scrolls or it's not scrolls but literature that that do that as well that condemn young people and say oh these people have no discipline have no sense of duty isn't that funny? It, since time immemorial, across all these cultures across the world, people have always looked down on the next generation, and the next generation has always resented or gotten mad about something about the older generation. It's not new. And yet we see this is not good. It's not good for human flourishing. It's not good for human society. And it's definitely not the heart of God. As we saw in that verse in Malachi chapter 4. And that's why we're talking about this series. What does that mean for us as a church, as the people of God who are called to be different from the world? How do we build strong multi-generational relationships? That's the point. Next week, we'll look at the good transition from David to Solomon. And how both generations reached across the generational divide in order to build a strong generational transfer that honored God. Today, we're talking about a negative one, a negative series, uh, a transition between two people, uh, actually before David and Solomon, the king before him and his son, Saul and Jonathan. And the story of Saul and Jonathan is a story of what would have been the first dynasty of, of the Hebrews. The first king, Jonathan was the first prince, 
he would have been the next king if things had gone according to Saul's plan. Um, and it's a, it's a tragic story because it's a story that had everything going for it. Saul had a lot of natural talent, lots of natural skill, lots of favor with people, and yet it, it, it fell apart to great tragedy for him and his family. And very often the story of Saul and Jonathan is overshadowed in the Bible because of one other big character who's there, David. See, the story of Saul and Jonathan can be found in the book of 1 Samuel. If you're not familiar with the Bible, just look at your table of contents and you can look for 1 Samuel. That's, that's Samuel. And the story, the 1 Samuel contains Samuel, the leader before Saul, Saul, the first king, David, the king after Saul, and, uh, and Jonathan is there as well as the friend of David, the son of Saul. And I want to point out the, the story of these people, but highlighting specifically the relationship of Saul and Jonathan. It starts in 1 Samuel chapter 9, where Saul becomes king. It begins with Samuel, who's the leader, he's the prophet and the judge. And the people say, we don't like what you're doing. We want a real king, like the nations around us. And God says, I don't think that's a good idea. You should wait. And he's like, no, 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 we want a king now. So fine, God relents. Pinagbigyan ni Lord yung mga tao. That's a dangerous place to be, where we ask God for something, and he says, I don't think that's a good idea, but we won't stop. So he allows it, even though it's not his perfect will. That's what happens to them. First Samuel chapter 9, 10, 11, 12, Saul is a good king. He, he unites the nation, he creates military success, and they defeat one of their enemies, which is good for them. The enemies who have been raiding them, plundering them, and he defeats them. This is good. But First Samuel 13 and 15 Saul makes some crucial missteps that seem small. It, when you read it, parang napakalit lang naman ito. Bakit issue na agad kay Lord to? But really, it's because it reveals his heart and his relationship to God. He disobeys God. God gives him clear instructions, precise instructions. And because it's inconvenient, because it would not profit him, and because it takes away his control, he doesn't want to obey. And so he disobeys God. And so finally, God says to Samuel, to Saul, you will not be king for long. Someone else is coming after you. And this is the beginning of his downfall. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 14 says that now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. What does this mean, harmful spirit from the Lord also? Really, everything comes from God. You either get God's goodness, or you reject God's goodness, and you invite evil into your life and that's what Paul that's Saul did I'm not saying God is evil but when you choose to reject God that's what you get there's no zero level it's either the goodness of God the grace the love the joy the peace of God or we reject him and say okay that's what Saul got and the verse says that Saul would get so tormented, he would rave, he would become angry. It's, it's, it's almost like this weird um, disorder that would fall on him that was deeply spiritual. And it would only calm down when David, this young shepherd boy who played music, would play music for him and he would calm down. First Samuel 17 is when David kills Goliath. That even many people who don't know the Bible know that, that part. He kills Goliath and that catapults him into fame. But that immediately sets him at odds with Saul. Saul is jealous about David. And uh, he hears people praising David. Aha! They're praising David. David's going to get the kingdom from me one day. 
Verse 9, and Saul eyed David from that day on. 1 Samuel 18, verse 9. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. The lyre is an instrument. As he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled his spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. What is happening here? The king is angry. He's so jealous of David. David is still there serving him, still playing for him graciously like a servant. You know, like I, I killed the giant for you. Now I'm going back to my role. I'm happy to play for you, to give you peace. And Saul is looking at him, getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And he has a spear in his hand. And first of all, if someone looks angry and they have a weapon, you should kind of stay away. I like the fact that it says David evaded him twice. I don't know if that means that Saul tried to throw the spear at David. David ducks and he goes, I don't know what that was about. And he keeps playing again. <laughs> and then Saul does it again. And then he ducks again. He's like, okay, I'll And he leaves. But Saul tries to kill David. <clears throat> Which is sad because it's the opposite response that Saul's son, Jonathan, had with David. While Saul was jealous of David enough to try to kill him, Jonathan loved David and supported him. 1 Samuel 18 verse 1. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Powerful verse. Um, what we see here is one of the most famous friendships in the Bible. One of the most famous friendships, honestly, in all of history. In fact, it's so strong and it's a friendship, so strong a love that people have mistakenly eroticized it and claimed that this was a homosexual relationship between David and Jonathan, which is absolutely false. There is no serious scholar of the Bible or scholar of the Hebrew who reads this and understands it that way. Instead, what the Bible is describing is a pure, strong, uh, self-giving love between two men who let aside their ambition and chose to support one another. And so now you can see the conflict that's going to brew. Saul wants to kill David, but Jonathan, his son, loves David and wants to support him. In fact, later on, David flees, and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 19 tries to intervene. He tells Saul, what are you doing? He's not, he's not fighting you. He's our friend. He's my friend. He killed the giant for you. He wins victories for you militarily. You should be befriending this guy. And so Saul's like, oh yeah, you're right. Let's let him back in. He brings David back in. David starts playing for him again. And then that mood, that evil spirit hits Saul, and he tries to kill David again. And then David has to flee. Finally, in 1 Samuel 20, David goes to, to Jonathan. He's like, your dad is nuts. Your dad is trying to kill me. And Jonathan's like, I don't know. Is it just a mood or is it premeditated? And finally, David says, I don't know. I, I really don't want to risk it anymore. And so Jonathan has an idea. Jonathan says, you know, here's what we'll do. I will, uh, we have a party. You're invited. Don't go to the party. And when my dad asks where you are, I'll give him an excuse. And if he takes the excuse, he's like, oh, okay, fine. Then that just goes to show that there's no ulterior motive, no harmful motive to his actions. It's just a bad mood. But if he gets angry that you're not there, then that's the sign that he's really planning something bad against you. And David is so grateful that his friend would, would go to that length for him. And so the party starts. The first night, David is not there. Saul notices, but he doesn't make a mention of it. Siguro na late lang. But the next night, he's not there again. And that's where Saul gives a comment. I'm reading from 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 27. 
But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Kung sa Tagalog, nasa rin kaibigan mo? Di ba niimbitan natin yan? Nasaan siya? Kahapon bang wala? But Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked me of me, leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Jonathan gives the excuse. Let's look at Saul's response. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. Lumiab ang kanyang galit sa anak niya. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse, that's David, lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Weird. What a response from a dad. The message version puts it this way, just so we can understand the words in more language of our time. Saul exploded in anger at Jonathan. You son of a slut! Don't you think that I know you're in cahoots with the son of Jesse, disgracing both you and your mother? For as long as the son of Jesse is walking around free on this earth, your future in this kingdom is at risk. Now go get him. Bring him here. From this moment, he's as good as dead. Wow! Wow! You, you curse your son, you curse your wife. You, you, you say, I only want the best for you, for you to be king. And don't you know... That that guy is the one keeping you from being king. Verse 32. Then Jonathan answered Saul his father. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. I don't know why Saul always has a spear. Who keeps giving Saul spears? No spears around the king. So Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David, because his father had disgraced him. Strange, strange reaction from Saul. He's telling his son, I want the best for you. I want you to be king. And your friend is the one who's going to steal the kingdom from you. And Jonathan says, why? What has he done wrong? He's just asking a question. And his dad flips out and tries to kill him. That's so weird. Out of proportion response. I want you to be king so much, I will kill you if you don't let me help you become king. What? That's how you know that there's something wrong. It's not just the words he's, say, he's saying. It's an out-of-proportion response. There's a deeper wound there. A deeper pain. A deeper anxiety there. A deeper sin issue there. A deeper unbelief there. That's driving Saul's actions. Saul would continue to act this way, and this is the part I'll summarize quickly now. He continues to chase David. David eludes him. There are times he falls into David's hands, but David never harms him. He lets him go, but he keeps trying to kill him. So David now has to stay in exile, basically, with many of the soldiers who are loyal to him. Saul foolishly gets into a war with the Philistines. And without David, his best general, and without many of the best soldiers who are now following David, he goes to war with his sons against the Philistines, and they lose. 
And Saul and all of his sons, including Jonathan, are killed. And that opens the door for David to eventually become king. And that's how it ended. The first, supposedly the, the reign of the first king of Israel, what would have been the first dynasty, ended that way. All because of a bad transition. The inability of Saul to, to pass on to his son something. What do we get from this? Maybe we're not kings, you know, we're not uh, kings or empresses or queens or whatever. But I see in Saul's example uh, a warning for us, especially for those of us in the older generation. As we attempt to disciple, to raise, to impart to, to reach out to the next generation. A warning for us to deal with what's going on in our own hearts, even as we try to help them. What are some of the lessons that we can learn from the life of Saul and his experience with Jonathan? Number one, our issues with the next generation reveal more about our heart than theirs. Our issues, our anxious responses, our sinful responses, our harsh words reveal more about our heart than theirs. See, very often when we're the older generation, it's so easy to see what's going on with them. With them, that's the issue. You, 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 there's an issue with you. You are rebellious. You are immature. You are easily, you don't sleep on time. Without thinking that the way we're saying it reveals something about our heart. The way we respond. I'm not saying there's no issue with them, but we should also be honest about dealing with what's going on in our heart. Let me give you a personal example. As you, uh, if you've seen my social media or my wife's social media, we've been able to go out of town here and uh, even do some outdoor stuff uh, that's things we're gonna miss when we get back to manila and hopefully the pandemic uh, blows over sooner than later but in one of those trips uh philip our six-year-old son asked for he said he saw this brochure for a zipline experience and he said i want to go to this thing so we researched and it was near where we were and even more importantly it was within the price range of what we were able to do and so we brought him there and it was this fun zipline we actually have Similar things in the Philippines, in Ilocos, in Mindanao, uh, and even some parts of, 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 Luzon, of uh, South Luzon. It's like a treetop experience, you know, where you walk and you, the kid wears a harness and then they clip to something so that it's impossible to, to fall off. So you'll cross and you'll cross at a high place and then at some point you'll zip line. And uh, so we get there and there were two other kids, a younger girl, younger than Philip, and then a much younger boy, the brother of that girl. And we were the only parents, my wife and I, and this, this dad who was watching his two sons, the boy and the girl. And so the guide took the three of them there and gave them instructions, got them all suited up. And because Philip was the oldest, she clipped him to first, and then the girl, and then the youngest, the, the little boy. And because they were all clipped, they all had to follow the same order, everything. So the, the bridge, all of it, dapat mauna si Philip, and then the girl, and then the little boy. For the first half of the, of course, it was so far so good. Philip did well. He, he slid. He was so brave. But on the third zip line, the highest one, maybe 30, 35 feet in the air, and he could see us under looking down, looking up to him, cheering him on, he faltered. And he, he got scared. And he said, I don't want to do this. I want to go down. And uh, the guide was good. You know, she coached him on what to do. And we were trying to shout encouragement. Come on, you can do it, Philip. You can do it. No, no, I don't want to. I don't want to. And uh, 
I was I was surprised to find in myself that I wanted my son to do it so badly that I could feel myself getting angry. Philip, come on. You you want this, right? Didn't you want to do this? And thankfully my wife was there and, and, and we because she was there I looked at her and we just pulled away and, and backed off and let the guide take care of it. And the guide escorted him and slid and swung with him for the first time. But while they were doing that, Carla and I were sitting and we were talking. And I was thinking to myself, why am I so bothered? Why am I so, so angry? And I could justify in my head. He told me he wants the zip line. Now we bring him the zip line. He doesn't do it. We wasted money. But it was deeper than that. I was beginning to think to myself, is my son scared? What kind of boy is like that? And it didn't help that the girl behind him was so brave and zipping across. And I, I, I confess, you know, there's a little bit of toxic masculinity coming out of me. Going, oh, did we? I almost shouted it. I almost shouted it. Look at the girl, she's not scared, she's younger than you. I'm so glad I didn't. And it goes deeper than that. Because so I sat there, I was thinking, I said, Lord, why do I feel this way? What am, what am I feeling? And as I thought about it, it's because I, I feel like a failure as a father. That my son is not an action star. <laughs> it's so stupid. Now that I say it out loud. But that's what I was thinking. You should be better than this. Where have I failed? Where have I gone wrong in my parenting? I'm not like that. Look at me. I do so many dangerous things. Do you see my head? Do you see my scar? I do dangerous things. Why can't you do that? See, I could see Philip's fear. But really, my response was revealing more of my issues. And so I prayed on the ground and I said, Lord, I, I don't want to be like this. Thank you for showing me how I'm being. I don't want to be like this. I want this to be a great memory for Philip. That's all. See, it's, it's, it's kind of like Saul, right? Saul tells Jonathan, I want you to be king. I want you to be king so badly, I will kill you. <laughs> In my passion to help you be king. That's what I was going to do. I want you to have a great memory. I want this to be a milestone for you. And in the process, I will traumatize you by embarrassing you in public. Thankfully, God got a hold of me before I said anything harsh. And as I felt my, my anger subside, as I repented and told God about it, Philip came down from his first and he ran to me. And Carla was somewhere else tending to the baby and I was holding Philip and I said, how is it? And he said, I finished, I finished, but I'm so hungry and I'm so scared. And I said, we can eat, we can eat as much as you want later. But do you want to try again? And see, this time... I could really address his issue because I had addressed mine first. Well, more like because the Holy Spirit had addressed mine first. Now the tone of voice was different. The facial expression was different. The body language was different. It was comforting. I think you can do it, Philip. I think you can do it again. At this point, the young girl had finished and she ran already to not be stuck behind Philip anymore. So she was doing it. And I wasn't minding her. I was looking at Philip and I said, Philip, you can do it. And so he went. Just like the first time, half of the course 
breeze through it super quickly. When he got to that highest point again, he got scared again. And he looked at me, he looked down at me, and, and I was looking up at him. But this time there was no frustration, there was no anger, there was no projecting myself onto his six-year-old body. There was only concern. And I said, Philip, do you want this memory to be the place where you got scared and you didn't finish? Or do you want this memory to be the place where you overcame your fear? I think you can overcome your fear. He was quiet. And then he did it all by himself this time without the guide. The guide was surprised that he did it. And he finished it. And then he went down and did it again a third time. Then he went down and did it again a fourth time. And after that, he said, I am so hungry right now. I said, Philip, you did it. How did you do it? And he said, I made it like medicine. I said, what? When you make me drink medicine, I don't like. One, two, three, do it, he said. So that's what I did. One, two, three, do it. And it was fun. And I was so thankful for his breakthrough. And for mine. It sparked a conversation with my wife and me a few nights later where we talked about our own anxieties. About the times we lose our temper with, with either of the boys. And she said it's because she's tired, she's drained, and that's when she loses it. And I said, it's, for me, it's when I have expectations that aren't met. And so we continue to help each other to address those expectations. To, to call each other out when we can see, oy, malapit na. Because the issues of the next generation really reveal a lot about ourselves and our own issues as well. For example, when our children misbehave, check our responses to them. Are they really rebelling? Is it sinful? Or are they just curious? Are they tired? Are they hurt? This is why I like Pastor Steve's book on parenting. Uh, my first, second, and third attempts on parenting. And you can get this on Kindle, I think. Uh, but Pastor Steve Merle, our, our, our founder, wrote a book about parenting. And it starts. And the main person it addresses is the parent's heart. Not talking about the kid's heart and how, how to fix his heart, how to change his heart, how to bend his heart. No, your heart. My heart as the older generation. What's going on there? Saul had so many issues with his son Jonathan. But they were really just reflections of his own demons. Of his own heart. And maybe this will happen across not just specific kids, but across generations. Very often the young, older generation now will look at the younger generation and will be irritated by what they do. By what they post on social media, by how they talk. But what does it say about us? What's it revealing about us? We have our own selfishness and brokenness to deal with. See, the reality is if something about the younger generation challenges, offends, or bothers me, it reveals more the state of my heart than what's going on with them. And I want to share a resource about this. It's helped me a lot personally in, in my leadership, in ministry, in my marriage, in my parenting really in all my relationships. And it's this book called The Leader's Journey by Jim Harrington. And I highly recommend it. You can find it on Kindle. Uh, and if you don't want to buy that on Kindle, you can just listen to our podcast about it on encleaders.ph, the ENC Leadership Podcast. I'm, I'm uh, the host there. But we have a series starting on the fifth episode about leading in anxious times. And really, I've been hearing great feedback about it, not because of leading, but because of how it helps our relationships. 
how it helps us respond to one another, how it helps us respond to our parents, to our kids. Because when we realize that what's going on that makes us so angry isn't what about isn't about what's happening outside, but what's really going on inside. Please read it, or please listen to it. It'll help. A lot of our small groups already in here in church are already discussing it. I know two of my small groups are. Uh, it's super beneficial. First thing I want to point out is our issues with the next generation reveal more about our heart than theirs. Second. The thing I want to point out from uh, Saul and Jonathan's story is that God's plans for the next generation are more important than our plans for them. Saul wanted Jonathan to be king, but that was only a reflection of his own desire to stay king despite the will of God against him. And he wanted Jonathan to be king so badly he was willing to hurt him, to do what's best for him, to kill him. <laughs> Like, like what I was going to do with Philip. I was going to traumatize him on what has become one of the best days of our trip so far. It was a battle of God's will versus the parents' will. This happens in our culture, doesn't it? Right? Parents who want specific careers or interests or lifestyle choices from their kids. Helicopter parents. Hovering, controlling everything. Look, there is a place for that, the younger they are, but the older they are, the more we have to give them independence. And it's hard. Because it's hard to see them that way, to see them let go that way. In campus ministry, for example, I've been in campus ministry for 16 years this year. And uh, it's a challenge working with young people and seeing them and wanting to spare them from pain, wanting to spare them from sin, wanting them to make the right decision right away. But we also know that unless they freely choose Jesus, there is no value to that. It will not produce life. So even though it hurts to watch them walk away sometimes and inflict new wounds on themselves, we just continue to pray and trust that God's will will be done. And if that's hard for a campus missionary, I can't imagine how hard that is for a parent. I'm sure it's even more difficult. But see, we cannot control everything. We have to trust God to work there. That's what Jonathan did. He saw God's plan for David. In 1 Samuel 23, 15 to 18, David is running again from Saul in the wilderness. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. He encouraged David. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. Look at this guy. He knows God's will. He says, You know what? It's not my will to be the king. You're going to be the king. I'll back you. Wouldn't that be better if our children will have an experience with Jesus? Even if it means they don't have our dream career for them. Even if it means they don't have the perfect. Even if it means that they might get hurt. But if they will know Jesus and know the will of God, isn't that better? Joseph, me, I would rather that my son was you know, fearless and did all of that thing like a ninja and didn't care. But you know, now it's an amazing milestone in his life. And he talks about it all the time. Papa, do you remember when I was scared? 
and I didn't give up. Isn't that better? You know, this is hard. And I, let me tell you one of the manifestations I've seen about this, especially in church. It's when parents, uh, and no offense, um, I love godly mothers, but sometimes there are very religious ones who want to manipulate their children into following Jesus. Pastor, talk naman to my son, talk naman to my daughter. That, that's fine in the beginning, but when you can tell that it's becoming manipulative, it's becoming coerced, and it's really, often it's not, it's not after the heart of the child. It's after the behavior. Changing the way they dress, changing the way they relate. Look, what's more important is they meet Jesus. And I, and I don't say this like it's going to be easy. You know, Philip's not yet a teenager. I'm sure my wife and I are going to struggle with stuff also when he's older. But what we have to go back to is trusting the will of God more than our own. Even for this next generation. Sometimes I look and I think, why are they so anxious? Why can't their lives be more simple? Why do they have to think about everything? Then I realized that my, at their age, I couldn't think about everything. I didn't have access to everything. I didn't have all the world's problems broadcasted to me on this. And so I could turn it off. I had the luxury of turning it off. Very often they don't. And so when I pray for them, I say, Lord, why is this the, the burden to carry for this next generation? To be shaped by these forces to grow up in this pandemic. Lord, naman bahad ganito. And when I pray, I ask God, Lord, give me your vision for them. Your wisdom for them. That even the muscles that they are building at this time, the hardships that they are experiencing at such a young age will produce a strength of character, a strength of relationships, a strength of faith that will be mighty in the decades to come. I want God's will. We want God's will. More than our will to be done. From Saul's life we can see that the issues that trigger us about the next generation really reflect our issues more. Secondly, it's more important to pursue God's will than our will for them. And lastly, the best legacy we can give for the next generation is our wholehearted pursuit of God. That was Saul's biggest stumbling block. That was Saul's biggest problem. When he began to disobey God, when he rejected the Spirit of God, Despite all of his best efforts and manipulations and schemes to give the best thing for his sons, it didn't work out. Because he was fighting God. In next week's transition, you'll see David and Solomon. That God blesses the entire thing and supports Solomon wholeheartedly. Not because of anything Solomon did, but because of David's wholehearted devotion to God. That's the best legacy we can give. You know, in all my years in campus ministry, the biggest stumbling block I've seen for kids who grow up with religious families, who turn away from Jesus, the biggest stumbling block I've ever seen are parents who don't practice what they preach. Who might put on a form of religiosity, church attendance, 
might even have a kind of legalistic, moralistic strictness, but no real, vibrant, thriving relationship with Jesus. That's the biggest stumbling block. It's almost like it would have been easier or better for that kid to know Jesus if his or her parents didn't pretend to be Christian. Harsh words. But they're true. And I don't mean to be perfect. No, 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 no. Being Christian isn't about being perfect. Other religions are about being perfect. But this one is not. This religion, this faith is about saying, I'm not perfect and I need the grace of God to change me. And that's what the next generation needs to see in us. Not rule, 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 statement, 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 preaching, 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 long-winded, generalizing Facebook post after another. No, no, what they need to see is the evidence of the grace of God in our lives. And us being a channel of the grace of God to their lives. Part of this means admitting we are at fault. That we are going through a process. Many times Carla and I have had to apologize to Philip. Philip, we're so sorry. We were harsh. Papa's in a bad mood. That's not right. And God's forgiving me. God has forgiven me. Because he's not like me. He's always gentle. Isn't that great about God? And maybe some of you are here and, and are listening and you want to give the next generation something grand, something like more money or more property or better uh, legacy of your name. Guess what the best legacy you can give is your relationship with God, your growing relationship with Jesus. And vice versa. If you feel like you have very little to give or nothing to give, but you have a relationship with Jesus, I tell you that's plenty. That is a lot. Your children, or maybe not even your biological children, the next generation in your life will draw life from that because of your relationship with Jesus. Submit to God. From Saul's life, we can see that the issues of the next generation that we that make us triggered really reflect our own issues. Secondly, it's more important to pursue the will of God than our own. And lastly, that the best legacy we can give to the next generation is our wholehearted pursuit of God. Let me give one aside before I pray. If you're a young person here, and maybe what I just described is your story, you've seen people be hypocrites. And it's made you doubt God, doubt your faith. It's made you think that, how can this be true? Whatever. I beg you, to think and to consider that the the poor representation that you have seen is not an accurate reflection of the beauty and the goodness and the kindness of our God. God is not like that. There's more to Him. And you can know Him. I'm encouraged in this story to see how Jonathan kept his faith and his walk with God and did wonders for God in his time. First Samuel 14, one of the most in- amazing encounters with the Jonathan had with God. An amazing adventure. Despite his father's lack of faith in God, he had a strong one. And you could have that. And Jonathan's faith would, despite his early end of life, would set up a good legacy, even for his children. But you'll read that about it in the Bible. Don't give up on on that. Go for the real thing. Just because you've been turned off by the fake, go for the real thing. 
As I end, we might be wondering, how is this possible? Joseph, you just described how historically generational gaps are common, are frequent, are even inevitable. We know we can do this because of our God. Because this picture of a of, of multi-generational relationship is actually captured, e- eternalized, <laughs> enshrined in our God. Who is the Christian God? We say he is a trinity. Three persons in one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a picture of relationship, yes, but specifically of a multi-generational relationship. Can you think about that? Of all the ways God could have chosen to introduce himself, of all of these he could have said, he says, if you want to know who I am, if you want to know what I'm about, I am a father, and this is my son, and I love him so much. And we want you to be a part of our family. See, the more we look at God and we see the way that God loves and forgives and defers and, and gives grace. Now, they don't forgive one another because they don't hurt one another, but they, they defer to one another. You see that Jesus and the Father deferring to one another, loving one another, honoring one another. You know, the Son defers to the Father and says, I, I don't choose to know that. You're the one who can know that. You figure that out. And the Father will, will say to the Son, you know, I empower you. I'm so proud of you. It's a relationship without that issues, without those, those anxieties. Just love. And when we become part of that family, we can bring our pains, our sins, our experiences, our traumas, our anxieties to God. See, for us in the older generation, we, we act this way because that's how we were raised. <laughs> That's what was done to us. That's why we do it. Does it mean it's right? You can bring that pain to God. Have Him address it. Then as you receive God's grace, you're a channel of God's grace to the next generation. And then we can do what Malachi 4 said. Where one of the benefits of the Spirit of Jesus is this reconciliation across generations. It is possible with God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us today to have a bigger view of who you are and what you're about. Lord, it's very easy for us to look outside and say, see what's wrong with you, with you, with you, with other people. But Lord, you're challenging us today to say, no, 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 this is what I care about. And I'm dealing with you also. I pray for those of us in the older generation, God, who, even as I'm speaking now, as they're listening to this message, Lord, the Holy Spirit is shining a light on their heart on times that they've lost their tempers, that were out of proportion, on disciplinary measures that were way out of line, of harsh words spoken that they wish they could take back, but somehow they justify in themselves saying it was right for the moment. Lord, today I thank you that there is always grace with you, And it doesn't matter how scarred we might feel or how scarred we may have or how scarred the next generation might be because of us. Your grace makes all things new. You make all things new, Lord. So we ask you, Jesus, to bring healing to our hearts, to address those things, those brokennesses. May we have good talks, even with our spouse, for those of us who are married. Even for those of us who are single, to have friends or, or even small group leaders and members we can talk to about this and say, here's what's going on with me. I've been pointing at this person, that person as the issue, but really it's something going on in my heart. 
And I thank you, Lord, that as you take away that pain, as you heal that, as we go to you daily for grace, that it will allow us to be a channel of your grace to other people as well. We pray for the next generation around us. Some of them are in our homes. Some of them are just on social media. Help us, Lord, today to speak to them with grace, to respond to them with grace. And may our lives of wholehearted pursuit and following you be a good legacy that will bring life to them to continue the work that you are doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us. You can visit victory.org.ph to find a church, join the Victory Group, and give online. Thank you for partnering with us in discipling the city, the nation, and the world through your generosity. For more messages like this, you can subscribe to this podcast through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts.